Well, good morning, and thank you, Jesse. Uh, it truly is a, a privilege to to be with you uh, again this morning. Um, <clears throat> like Christ the King, we have also a lot of people on on travel, and so um, I do want to thank the elders of Las Tierras and uh, the uh, the new pastor. Jeff White, for the opportunity to open to you God's Word this morning. Uh, you know, it's interesting, as the, as the body of Christ here at Las Tierras uh, stands on the, on the precipice, on the verge of, of a new chapter in the life of your church, you know, rebuilding after COVID, um, moving into a new building, and taking on a new pastor, these are huge. These are huge things, and um, they're... they're Huge changes in the life of your church and in your own life as well. And so I want to encourage each of you, both young and old, uh, men and women, boys and girls, uh, as you walk on your Christian journey. Um, You know, the Christian life is indeed a remarkable journey, isn't it? Um, In which we grow in the knowledge of the Lord, in His Word, a journey in which we learn to trust Him. Um, sometimes simply by trusting in His Word, um, as we uh, learn and understand His Word. Sometimes we uh, grow in our journey um, the hard way, don't we? Sometimes uh, in those times when we try to run far from the Lord, and um, we often get tempted sometimes into thinking that uh, we could run from Him, um, but He is faithful, isn't He? Um, sometimes we get tempted into thinking the world can fill the emptiness of our heart um, and the emptiness that only he could fill. And so, I, you know, I can't imagine, before I jump into this passage, I can't imagine my personal life, my life, my journey without three things. Um, I can't imagine, first of all, where I would be without the saving grace of God. Um, you know, I was telling, um, I was telling uh, your elder this morning, um, we were talking about Bible tracks. You know, I found a, go- a, I heard the gospel through a Bible track back in 1978 in, in a mug in a store at Sierra Vista Mall. So I couldn't imagine where I would be. In fact, I know where I would be without the, the Lord. I'd be spiritually dead and I'd probably be physically dead. Secondly, I couldn't imagine where I would be uh, in my journey without the Word of God. You know, in it we find the character and the holiness and the beauty of God. We find, we see salvation, we see what God expects, but we also see in the Word of God who we are and what we are and what we are capable of. And that's kind of frightening, isn't it? Um, Thirdly, I couldn't imagine my Christian journey uh, without the body of Christ, the church. Uh, It's it's a place where um, we should be safe, feel safe. It's a place where wounded people come. In fact, one person uh, said the church is a, uh, is a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. Um, so last week I preached on uh, Isaiah chapter 6 about the sovereignty of God in salvation. It's a core doctrine of the Reformed Church. It's a core doctrine of this church and um, because it's a core doctrine of the Bible. And, and God really does save his people. And so I want to continue on that theme today from one of my favorite Old Testament books, from the book of Jeremiah, uh, for 
Uh, it also proclaims that salvation is of the Lord. And it's the Lord who saves us completely and fully. And this might bother, you, bother some of you, um, and, and I, I hope it does, um, because it bothered me when I first heard it. But if you belong to Him, He will save you. And He will do it even if you're on the run from Him, won't He? He'll come after you. And He saves us without our permission and without our consent. Let me say that again. He saves us without our permission and without our consent. That usually comes afterward, doesn't it? And so after He finds you and changes your heart, of course, then and only then do we willingly consent. But to help you understand how the Lord saves you, I want to take time this morning to remind you of the new covenant. What exactly is the new covenant? And how different is it from the old covenant? Because you see, my friends, if you fail to understand the difference between the new and the old covenant, and I'm not talking about the new and the old testament, If you fail to understand the difference between the new and the old covenant, where those lines, if those lines are blurred in your mind and in your thinking and in your heart, you will be, your Christian life will be a burden to you. It will not be a joyful experience. It will, it'll be a burden and you will be fooled into thinking that God just wants you to be good and to behave, and to be obedient. So let me repeat this, especially to uh, you young. Uh, we don't have too many young. we got some real little ones. But, um, you know, and, and bef- hopefully some of the parents, before you reach out and, and want to uh, get too upset with me, God doesn't want you to be good. God doesn't want your children to be good. You don't need to be be a Christian to be good. God wants you to be perfect. See, think about those messages. God wants you to be perfect, and you're only going to find perfectness in one person, and that is Jesus. The other message, God God wants you to be good, is just going to lead you to be a good little Pharisee. And so, the Old Testament contains... Both the Old and New Covenants, doesn't it? Unfortunately, a lot of the modern Christian message that we hear today, um, out there and on the radio, uh, much of it is still mired in the Old Covenant. And I think as we progress through this, I think you'll understand. So what is the Old Covenant? Let me give you a hint. It starts with three words. And the first word is a two-letter word that starts with if. The Old Covenant starts with man and not God. And you first see the Old Covenant where? At Mount Sinai. At the giving of the law. And then you see the Old Covenant repeated throughout the Old Testament. But you also see the New Covenant sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. The Old Covenant is simply this. If you will do something, God will do something. 
That's the old covenant. Let me repeat that. If you will do something, God will follow and respond. That's the old covenant. Specifically, the old covenant, the Lord says, if you will obey my laws, my statutes, my commands, and if you obey them fully, then I will be what? I'll be your God, and you will be my people. The terms and conditions of a bilateral covenant, right? Where both parties agreed. Remember at Sinai, the people said, we will do this. God said, if you, if you obey my laws, my covenant, my, my, my statutes, my commands, if you obey them fully, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, or else what? You will be cursed. So the old covenant is a conditional statement. Those of you that have ever programmed a computer language, you know what an if-then-else statement is, and that's the old covenant. If you will do this, I will do this. And sometimes you see that in the modern Christian message, don't you? Both in terms of salvation and in terms of our journey, our sanctification. If you will just accept Christ into your heart, if you will just open your heart to Christ, if you will just read your Bible, if you will just pray, if you will just obey. Now, I'm not saying not to do those things, because those things are important. But we do those things only in the context of the new covenant, when we understand the new covenant. The old covenant is what the Lord says, I expect of you. So think Ten Commandments, right? Jesus summed those Ten Commandments into two. Uh, A vertical commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then a horizontal commandment. Love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. How's that going? Is that a little bit difficult? It's, it's more than difficult, isn't it? It's quite impossible. So that's why St. Paul says that old covenant is important because it's supposed to bring us to Christ. It's supposed to lead us to Christ. And when we take a close look at God's old covenant, God's law, love God with all His heart, love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love our neighbors, ourself, that if God's grace is working in our heart, we should come to what conclusion? I can't do this. I need a Savior. And so... There's nothing wrong with God's law, is there? It's a, it's a beautiful extension of His character. That's why you read in the Psalms and David says, I love thy law. And that should, be, that should be the chorus of our heart. But there's nothing wrong with God's law. It's perfect. It's holy. But there's something wrong with us, isn't there? So let's now... Hear the word of God from Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 30 through 41. If you have a Bible with you or your favorite Bible app, I'll be reading from the ESV version, starting in verse 30. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declare the Lord. The city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight 
because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 33. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abomination in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnon to offer up their sons and their daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Verse 36, Now therefore, thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it's given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their heart that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. This is the word of God. So as you read through the Old Testament, you see the Old Covenant throughout, don't you? If you will obey me. If you will just obey me. Did the people of God obey Him? Ever? No. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know they never really obeyed God. And so if they never obeyed God, what do you think is the next theme and the next words out of God's mouth to His people. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. If they never obeyed, guess what's the next, the next logical step in the Old Covenant is? Okay, you haven't obeyed me? How about if you repent? If you repent, I'll forgive you. And um, you see there in, in verse 30, they never obeyed. Verse 30, in fact, in Jeremiah seven twenty-five, it says, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I've persi- persistently sent my servants and prophets to them day after day, yet they didn't listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So they never obeyed. You know why they never obeyed? Because they could not obey. They could never obey under the terms of the old covenant. If they could have obeyed, then the new covenant would have been an afterthought. And the same with repentance. In fact, in Jeremiah 4, the Lord says to the people of Israel, if you want to repent, you can repent. And so, 
That's really an interesting statement, isn't it? If you want to repent. What's the problem? We don't want to repent. In our unregenerate heart, we will never want to repent. Do we need to repent to be saved? Absolutely. Must we repent to be saved? Yes. Can we repent? No, not until we're given a new heart. Will we, re- will we repent? Absolutely. But we'll only repent after, after we have a new heart. So think about the gospel encounter um, that, with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, the Pharisees bring her to Jesus and they say, this woman under the old covenant, under the Old Testament law, she should be stoned. And of course we know from the story they're trying to tempt the Lord and try to trap him with his answer. But, but think for a moment his response to... Um, he says two things to two groups of people. To the religious hypocrites, he, we know, we remember what he says. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Recall what he says to the woman. He says, he stood up and said to her, Woman... Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And if you see Jesus' response, if you reverse that, you don't have the gospel. If you reverse that, order, you don't have... Christianity. You don't have the gospel. You have religion. You have Islam, Mormonism, whatever you want, if you reverse that. If you reverse that order and say, just stop sinning, and I'll and I will not condemn you. Sin no more, and I will not condemn you. Instead, he says, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel. You find that nowhere else. In fact, you, you, sometimes you don't even find that in modern Christian churches. So the old covenant formula, if you obey and repent, then God will be your God and you'll be his people. And so if you don't live up to those terms, we're cursed. So look again at verse 37 through 41. Look at the new covenant formula. What is it? If the old covenant is if you will do something, if you will obey, The new covenant formula is this. Look at verse 37 through 41. Behold, I'll gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger. I'll bring them back to this place. I'll make them dwell in safety. Verse 38. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will make them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. I will rejoice in doing good to them. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. And so, the new covenant formula, the Lord says, and by the way, it's not, it's not a bilateral agreement, is it? It's something the Lord does. I mean, look at Genesis 15. He makes this promise with Abraham and they pass through the animals that are cut in half, which was something that they did to make a treaty back then. 
And what was Abraham doing when God is making this promise? Abraham's asleep. And so God does this. He saves his people. The new covenant formula is I will, then you will. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so while the old covenant starts with man, the new covenant starts and ends with God. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. But the million dollar question is still between these two passages. How can the Lord just go from verse 30 through 35? How can he go and then jump from 37 to 41? He says, you've done nothing but evil in my sight. You've provoked me to anger. You've aroused my wrath. The children have turned their back on me. They've, they've abandoned me. You see that throughout the Old Testament. But yet you see this, these beautiful new covenant promises. How can he do that? You know, in, Jer- in Jeremiah 5.7, uh, the Lord asks his people a question. He says, why should I forgive you? Why? For what reason? On what basis should I forgive you? I want to direct your attention now to the New Testament in Romans 5.8 where it says, but the Lord, but God demonstrates his love toward us in in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while the children of Israel and Judah, God's people, which I hope you relate to, you know, this, if we were there, we are that we are God's children and um, God's people. And so while it says the children of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth, look what it says about Christ your Savior in 2 Peter. He committed no sin and no one ever heard a lie come out of his mouth. Who did right every day from his youth? Who pleased the Father? Who did not turn his back on the Father? Jesus pleased the Father, and the Father was well pleased with him. John 8.29, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to my instruction. Matthew 3, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, while the Lord describes his people as having turned their back on him, Jesus never turned his back on his father. But what did the father do to him? Did not his father turn His back on Him? Did God the Father turn His back on Jesus? He not only took our sin, Paul says, he says He became sin for us. He who knew no sin. And so all those Old Testament curses of failing to keep the Old Covenant, they had to go on someone. And they didn't go on us. They went on him. Recall what Isaiah said. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
But if you know your New Testament, He opened His mouth, didn't He? He opened His mouth on that cross. And He cried out to God, and what did He say? Why? Why have you forsaken Me? In His humanity, the Lord cries out. Somewhat of a rhetorical question, perhaps for us. Why have you forsaken Me? He didn't cry out to proclaim His innocence. He was innocent after all. He opened His mouth and He said, Why have you forsaken Me? So He could save His people from their sins. And so He could save them utterly and completely from their sins. Salvation is of the Lord completely. And as Lastiera stands on the uh, on the precipice of a new chapter in the life of your church, we had to ask ourselves this same question at Christ the King. Why does El Paso need yet another church? Why? And as there only being two Reformed PCA churches in this town, Christ the King and Las Tierras, El Paso needs this church in this community so that they would hear and know that salvation is of the Lord. And that, and that is a beautiful message to proclaim where you live, where you work, and where you play. And so, have you experienced the reality of the new covenant, the new creation, a new heart with new affections? You know, there was a 19th century Scottish theologian, Thomas Chalmers, and um, he wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. See, anything less than salvation being completely of the Lord would leave room for us to boast, wouldn't it? So, will you trust in Him? Will you walk with Him? Will you worship this Jesus, eternal Son of God, who hung on the cross for our sin, who lived a perfect life in our place, who died a perfect death? And so, as I as I as I finish, I want to leave you with. The assurance that Christ in you, Christ as you, Christ for you. And that that would be the heartbeat that helps you through your journey. Let's pray.